Hello and welcome to episode two of Humanism Now, the new podcast from the Central London Humanists. I'm your host, James, and this week we'll be talking about what it means to be Black, British and humanist in the UK today, an update from the, on the government's ban on conversion therapy, and just what does it mean to be spiritual and non-religious. Plus all that, plus our interview with Professor Christopher Cameron. And to discuss this, I'm delighted as ever to be joined by our regular guest, AJ, from Central London Humanist, Young Humanist, Humanist International. AJ, I think it's getting to the point where we should probably just mention the groups that you're not involved with. Just AJ's fine. Yeah. Hi, James. Glad to join you. And also this week, I'm delighted to introduce a new guest, uh, Audrey Simmons, a colleague at Central London Humanist and one of the co-leads of the Association of Black Humanists covering all of the UK. Welcome, Audrey. Thank you. Great. Well, um, I think it'd be great if you could just give our listeners a bit of an introduction to yourself and perhaps your personal journey to humanism. Wow. Thank you, James. And thank you, AJ. Um, as I say, my name is Audrey Simmons and I am one of the the co-leads of Association of Black Humanists, an organization that's been around for about 10 years, working in the humanist community with a particular focus on the African, African Caribbean and the diaspora um, of the people who have left religion, thinking of leaving religion and kind of looking at all the issues that go with being from countries such as Nigeria or the Caribbean, where leaving religion is not just a case of just sort of deciding not to go, where there are other issues culturally and, and sort of part of being part of that community. So that's our focus. We've been doing this, as I say, for around 10 years, um, just trying to make humanism a little bit more comfortable and making people aware that there is such a thing as black humanists, black non-believers, black free thinkers. And that is mainly our aim um, in the kind of work that we do in the kind of events that we put on and the kind of talks that we give is to just generally repeat that point. Um, I myself started out as a I suppose I've had a mix of, of religions and upbringing. I went to a Church of England school, but my family were seven day Adventists. So I ended up going to, to church on Saturdays and Sundays, which is probably uh, why I'm a little schizophrenic in, in terms of religion. Um, and so being raised in that kind of uh environment, um, sort of focusing on the end of times. I think anyone who's a seven-day Adventist kind of focuses on revelations. So they're all that kind of um, sort of end of times um, kind of religion. Leaving that, um, I stopped going sort of to church quite early on, but still had to be involved because of my family. Um, so I had to kind of still be going quite regularly. Um, and it's been a, a kind of slow unpacking, unpicking of, of religious um, rituals and things that we kind of have to do as as, as non-believers once you've been raised in a, in a religious house, household. Um, so it's taken me a long time um, to kind of get to the point where I can build, feel comfortable in saying I am a black person, I am from a religious family, but I am a non-believer. And I think that's the story of many um people from my community, many black people from my community. And it's a long, slow process. There's no epiphany. There's none of that. It's just kind of taking the time to read, to think, and then to feel comfortable. And then facing the challenges that some people do face um, when having made that decision 
to be no longer involved within the religious community. And do you think there are some unique challenges for for black people who are either coming out as non-believers or want to proactively state that they're humanists? They're definitely um, unique challenges. I think we look at, when we look at the black community, it has been depicted and still is um, a heavily religious community. So wherever part of Africa you come from, wherever part of the Caribbean you come from, being religious and religion is part of the fabric of society. If we think of where I'm from, I'm from Jamaica, if you think of the Caribbean, the very fabric of the, you know, the whole foundation of those um, societies once slavery was over was about was being controlled by religious organizations and religious institutions, whether it be the Catholic Church, um, the Moravian, the Quakers, Baptists, a whole range of organizations would then sweep in. So the whole backdrop to the Caribbean life was about religion in terms of education, um, in terms of health, all of those things. And if we look in Africa now, the Catholic Church is one of the biggest churches providing healthcare and education within Africa. And so, again, we have this big backdrop of religion. Um, So if you speak to many religious people, many African people, um, you know, religion pays an enormous part in their lives. and um, we just need to keep that voice out there um, because obviously we know that in Nigeria with the with sort of um, Islamic and Christian uh, beliefs being there, um, there are real real troubles, real problems with people being arrested and 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 things like that. So the black community has particular issues that I think that don't exist within the wider European community. Yeah, I just like to pick up on something that Audrey said there about just being visible and allowing that possibility in people's minds that they can leave their faith, especially when it's so embedded in your life. Uh, I know that some of our colleagues from say Faith to Faithless, which is not a part of part of Humanist UK, and they uh, work a lot with uh, apostates, for example, from the Muslim background. And I've had Muslim apostates say to me, I wasn't even uh, aware that it was a possibility to leave Islam. I and mean, it sounds a bit odd. It's just a belief system. You, you in our um, Western, uh, fairly liberal bubble, we can, uh, to an extent, although there are some extreme elements also here, you can buy into or buy out of, join and leave belief systems, groups. We have a different relationship with religion to other people in other parts of the world. So having that possibility, having that visibility, okay, well, there is a Black Humanist Association uh, or there is a you know ex-Muslims association, having that as a possibility, just uh, putting that banner up for people who may be quite cut off in their family uh, um, neighbourhoods, in their uh, kind of cul-de-sacs of society, enforced cul-de-sacs because that's how they retain control because of that. Having a visibility or for a group like Black Humanists, I think, is really important. Yes, I think that's, I'm not a quiet person. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm not one of those people that just sit down and just kind of think, well, this is where I am. Um, I am a kind of person that would need to step forward and say and shout very loudly that this is a possibility. And AJ, I think you raise a really important point that it's about just being aware that people can do this, that you can actually opt out. Um that's the hardest thing, especially when you're not just, it's not just your culture um, and your community, it's your way of life. And it's a way of life that you've known all your life and everyone around you 
has that same thinking. So, you know, you have to get over the idea that you're actually a bit odd. You're the odd one out and dealing with all of that. And that can be quite, you know, sort of, you become quite angst ridden and, you know, what's wrong with me? And usually find that people who leave usually become much more religious in that kind of quest to kind of think, why am I the, the, why am I strange? Why am I not like the rest of my family? And I think that's um, an important thing to remember that people are going on a journey and that journey is quite traumatic. So, yeah, so and mm. because they're losing so much. Actually, one question that we had coming out of last week's episode was just for perhaps more of a precise definition or specific definition of humanism. And I was just wondering, Audrey, you mentioned, you know, you're not going to uh, you're not one to stay quiet. Um, you know, so it's not just just a case of leaving faith and, and quietly, you know, not being a believer. And I just wondered what for you was the reason why you wanted to come out as a humanist and pu- be publicly facing and present and say, I am a humanist. And and what does humanism mean to you that is not there in just being a non-believer? I think the reason I wanted to come out is to give people that choice. I think one thing that's lacking in, in, in black communities and African communities is the choice to be who you want to be. We talk so much about it in there, you know, you know, your sense of identity and all of these things. Um, and I think if people don't actually know um, that they can actually be a non-believer. But more importantly, what I think humanism offers is the, the understanding that you can leave religion and still be okay, that you can still be kind, moral, and all the rest of those things that have been so um, caught up with religion that they've taken over the idea that if you are not with them, that you are somehow the worst human being ever. And I think those that causes the angst, well, who am I if I am not a Christian, if I am not a Muslim, if I am not a Seventh-day Adventist, who am I? And I think humanism offers an answer to that. You are still, you know, you're still a person, you're a human being, but it also offers that for me, it's a relief. It's a relief not to be so answering about who am I allowed to be with? What kind of Christian can I be? What kind of Christian can I you know, be involved with? As a seven day Adventist, the Catholic Church was the Antichrist. So there's this all this angst about, you know, how am I going to live my life? What's this going to, you know, what's this Christian life supposed to be? Who am I supposed to be mixed with? Who am I supposed to be avoiding? And when you kind of let go of all of that, there's a sense of relief. And there's a sense of um, a way forward as a human being and how you can reconnect with not just yourself, with your community, but with the wider world. When you suddenly realize that you're part of something much bigger and that you have a contribution to make and a legacy to leave, even if it's not, you know, you're not going to be on TV or famous, just the, the, the community that you, you are with. Just to say, I am a humanist, I am here, and I'm living a life, I'm living a great life, and I'm in touch with every single one of you. And, you know, just have those kind of open and free conversations without restriction, um, for me, is what humanism represents. Yeah. And AJ, how would you define humanism? What, what is it that you believe? Thanks, James. Yeah, we mentioned this a bit uh, last episode, and I think it's it's one of the one of the 
characteristics of humanist discussions that we always seem to be defining humanism. We always seem to be picking away at it and, and lifting it up, up the rock and seeing what's under, underneath it. But I think that's part of, that's actually demonstrating one of the uh, hallmarks of humanism is critical thinking, is investigation, is a willingness to re-examine our own precepts, our own axioms, and um, just trying to get it trimmed down to the essentials and the core. And revisiting our worldviews and refreshing them is, I think, one hallmark of humanism that, as we mentioned in episode one, many other belief and faith systems don't share. We can include the link to the Declaration uh, on Modern Humanism from Humanist International. And I was there when it was voted in in Glasgow. This is the follow-up to or the new version of the Amsterdam Declaration, which was had existed for some time before that many years. And that really boils down to its core, the four main points of what in Humanist International and their members view, but it is quite representative globally, what humanism is and what humanism and what humanists strive to be. They strive to be rational, which means using evidence-based uh, re reasoning and evidence and scientific methods, which we think is the best empirical tool we have for investigating the world around us, striving to be rational using the scientific method, striving to be ethical and empathetic, and within all of that is concern for the natural world, for sentient organisms generally, or striving to be uh, democratic as well. And especially we see in a world that's uh, heavily dominated by populist politics, we're questioning ourselves to what democracy is, is it mob rule, is it not? So a, a reference to a democracy was also there. And the reference to empathy uh, also attacks this idea of maybe being just just an atheist, or maybe even being a nihilist. So we're not, uh, so as Audrey said there, with her background and what she's bringing to the humanist experience and her path, living well and showing that you can have a full fulfilling life full of wonder full of love mystery i mentioned my human spirituality connections uh in episode one we may come to that a bit later all of those things she mentioned about living a full life and not living a half life which is the propaganda that we sometimes get from uh, others about humanists and atheists that also is there, living a fulfilling life, full of human flourishing, human creativity and free expression. So those three or four points there is what we find in the Amsterdam, in the uh, Declaration of Modern Humanism, uh, excuse me. Uh, and so that's that's also how I'd respond to that. Thank you both so much. But just before we move on, Audrey, if anybody is interested to get involved um, or join the Association of Black Humanists, what's the best way for them to get in touch? We um, use Meetup for all our events and um, making contact with, with um, any members. Um, and that's where we are. So a meetup association um, of black humanists. It's also been a very busy week uh, for AJ and some members of the LGBT humanists, young humanists and other humanist UK groups um, having a day trip down to parliament to put some pressure on the prime minister. AJ, could you give us uh, an update on the, the campaign that you've been involved with? Yeah, so we're fresh off... Um a demo yesterday at uh, Parliament Square uh, in front of the House of Lords and House of Commons. And this was in relation to the ban on conversion therapy in the UK. Um, so maybe we could start off with some background just very briefly. Conversion therapy, is, as many listeners may know, is a kind of diverse set of practices, uh, religiously associated in many cases, part of, uh, as we mentioned before, uh, when we looked at Audrey's story, uh, in the settings of churches and other family and, and other worship groups, uh, where there is a set of religious and maybe slightly even pseudoscientific 
practices that aim to, for example, quote unquote, pray away the gay exorcisms uh, and other kind of practices that are made uh, are targeted at quite vulnerable and often quite young um, people who maybe from a religious background, but their families are, are disapproving of their sex and gender identity and orientation and preferences. So this is a human rights abuse, a grave human rights abuse. It's an international uh, scandal, really, that we try and have a moral authority on an international scene, but yet we can't even get our, our own house in order and try and allow for these basic human rights breathing spaces to exist. So five years ago, uh, the government committed to or announced that it's going to introduce legislation to ban conversion therapy in the UK. Since then, there's been, a, as we know, tumultuous period for many reasons in, in the UK. But still, I think uh, politics aside and partisan politics aside, this is a grave human rights issue and nothing's been done about it. There's been several U-turns. The latest that we got from it before yesterday or before the summer, which is what response, uh, which is what uh, um, kind of, uh, which is what, prompted us to go on this demo yesterday was that there, there was a draft bill sitting uh, with Rishi Sunak, the prime minister, and I was waiting for his signature, but there's been no action taken on it. And actually there's now the latest news is that it's been cancelled completely. So we wanted to go out there and uh, really make this uh, uh, visible and uh, raise the banner to say, and in allyship with Stonewall and many other um partners who are also working to make sure conversion therapy is banned, that this is completely unacceptable. So we were there with LGBT humanist colleagues, uh, Young Humanist UK represented by myself and also uh, other Humanist UK volunteers. And uh, we actually made it onto uh, ITV National News, which was uh, quite a good exposure for us because this really, really is a key issue. And uh, we just wouldn't be able to look our uh, LGBT humanist uh, colleagues and friends you know, in the eye if we don't do all we can to take action on this and to force uh, the government to stick to their commitments. I suspect a lot of listeners might be surprised that these practices are still happening in the UK. How prevalent is conversion therapy in the modern day? Well, again, the, the UK government's own um, census data or, or research has shown uh, when they've done, when they've looked into the prevalence of this, that probably about five to ten percent i think maybe seven percent was the figure of um, lgbt plus people in the uk have undergone some form of conversion therapy again it's a very wide broad range of practices and of that uh, proportion of people about half of them or just over half of them have had it done in a religious setting so for us as humanist uk who are really the leading non-religious uh, representative body and charity in the uk that strikes at the very heart of our mission because there's non-religious people or religious people who are doubting their faith or who find themselves in a, a position of vulnerability and who feel trapped uh, as i said yesterday at, at the protest and i was interviewed they feel trapped in that situation and also as, as audrey has described a bit with her background as well when you have everyone around you making you feel like you're under the spotlight like making you feel you've done something wrong and that you need to be cured or that what you feel as a natural urge is just a lifestyle choice there's vulnerable people there that uh, you know day by day are still suffering and uh, the main theme of the protest yesterday the demonstration was abuse doesn't take a summer break and we had a beach theme and to Ryan really cap to put that in people's minds and to get that on social media and to try and increase the pressure on uh, us as a society and the government who represents us to stick to their commitment.
you said the latest news is that it's being cancelled. Is that been officially confirmed or is that uh, just due to the, the substantial delays at this point? Yeah, it's uh, it was what it's what's been reported. So uh, in response to uh, some of the news that we're hearing this week, but the government hasn't officially commented on it. But it seems like they're manoeuvring, which wouldn't surprise us because that's the pattern of behaviour that we've been seeing. Yes, no, yes, no, and then delays. It just doesn't seem to be a priority for this government, uh, which is which sells a lot because we are, you know, just to take a, a wider perspective on things, a global perspective, when we are. Uh, trying to impose our diplomatic and moral authority internationally with, say, for example, Iran or Russia. And that's very important that we do that and that we do try and represent these liberal values generally internationally, such as they are. If we're doing that, if we're trying to do that abroad, but even in on our own shores, we can't even ensure the basic... I mean, uh, someone's sexuality and someone's gender preference is one of the most personal things that you can possibly get. It's very, very important, and especially at a young age. I mean, young humanists broadly are 18 to 35. That's kind of our, our remit uh, for me as one of the coordinators of young humanists. But essentially, we should be looking at we have school speakers and we try to outreach education uh, through educational um, campaigns. So we're concerned about uh, humanists and potential humanists of all ages. And at that really young age, especially in the teenage age, in your early 20s, in the formative years, if you're not allowed to express your sexuality and gender uh, in uh, identity in the way that you naturally feel that you should be, that can be tra traumatizing for life. So apart from the moral authority, it loses us diplomatically and internationally. There's also a really grave human rights abuse here that's uh, being ignored. So yeah, it looks like uh, it's trying to be deprioritized by this government. And there is there are some rumors that it, it could just be cancelled completely. And we can't let that happen keep up that work it's it's really hard um in the communities that i work with in the african community african caribbean community homosexuality is still seen very much in light in line with religious values and even if you're not particularly religious within within the community homosexuality is still one of the biggest taboos that there are, that we have going and there's always an ongoing issue um, and it's coupled with the idea of masculinity as well. So in some of these, the, the toxic masculinity that is also out there and it's quite prevalent. So, you know, this combination of, of things within within the community um, can be quite traumatic and can be life changing. You know, you will, again, if you're suspected of being gay, it can be, you know, you can be ostracized, even whether you are or not, if they're, you know, if you're not masculine enough just that hint of being gay or possibility um can you know they can totally take over and destroy your life so i think it's important that um you know the work that, that humanist uk and everyone that you're working with aj continues that work and continues that voice being heard yeah i'd echo that thank you aj and if again anybody would like to support that campaign or get involved what would be the best way to contact you there Jay? Yes, there's one of our key campaigns as part of Humanist UK. You can go to humanist.uk, our website, or follow Humanist UK or LGBT humanists and young humanists on socials. Thank you. Now, as mentioned at the top of the show, we will next week be hosting our joint event with the Association of Black Humanists. And our guest speaker, I'm delighted to say, has joined us for uh, an interview just to preview that talk. So here's my interview with Chris Cameron. Dr. Christopher Cameron is an Associate Professor of History at the University of North Carolina. 
He's the founder of the African American Intellectual History Society, the author of To Plead Our Own Case, African Americans in Massachusetts and the Making of the Anti-Slavery Movement, and the co-editor of New Perspectives on the Black Intellectual Tradition. His most recent book, Black Free Thinkers, explores the history of secularism in the United States. Dr. Cameron, thank you so much for joining us. Welcome to Humanism Now. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to have you on the show, and we're very much looking forward to hearing more about uh, Black Free Thinkers in your event with um, both our groups and, and SI Martin on the 22nd of September. Um, but I think perhaps just to start, it'd be great to find out more about uh, your uh, your background and your personal journey to humanism and what inspired you to, to write the book. Yeah, sure. So I, I had... Um probably a somewhat unconventional uh, path towards humanism. So I wasn't really raised uh, traditionally religious. Um, my mom's side of the family is French Catholics um, from Quebec, and, and they had migrated down to New Hampshire uh, in the 60s. Uh, growing up, you know, I went to church once or twice a year, Easter, midnight mass, that type of thing, you know, not really important. Every once in a blue moon, my mom would feel guilty about, you know, not really exposing us to church. And oddly enough, she wouldn't bring us to a Catholic church. Um, she would bring us to like some storefront evangelical church or something like that. Uh, we'd go for a couple of weeks and then, you know, fall off. Um, but I actually sort of turned more towards religion when I was incarcerated. So I got into dealing drugs when I was in high school. Um, I got arrested in June of 2001. Uh, and I went to a county jail in Manchester, New Hampshire. And probably a week or a week and a half into my uh, sentence, I remember I was reading this book called An American Tragedy by Theodore Dreischer uh, about a young man who had like committed a murder uh, after achieving some success in life. And he's sitting in jail at the end and, you know, pondering his whole life. And I could kind of relate not to the murder part, but to the sitting in jail and like wondering, what have I done? You know, and he accepts God at the end and and it's all good. And that kind of pushed me to do the same thing. Right. I remembered some religious lessons from my grandmother growing up and got on my knees and did the whole, you know, Jesus come into my heart and everything. And so I thought I was saved. I thought I was good to go. But it was kind of weird because after that, I immediately started questioning the entire thing. Like, well, am I really saved? Like, how do I really know? Like, Jesus didn't actually tell me or confirm that I am, you know? So even, uh, you know, I was having doubts pre pretty soon after. Um, I'd get out after eight months in 2002, and I was basically forced by the state to attend uh, religious recovery, right? Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous. They they say there you don't have to be religious, but um, it, it seemed pretty religious to me, like like state sanctioned and enforced uh, religiosity. Um, so I did that for a few years till I got off probation. Um, ended up transferring, uh, going to college. Uh, and then transferring to a school out in Western New Hampshire. Um, wasn't really particularly religious there or anything. Then when I went to grad school, that's when I actually got into kind of formal religion, right? Um, I started a PhD program in history uh, at UNC Chapel Hill in 2006. And um, I was one of uh, two black uh, PhD students in my cohort. Uh, and there just weren't a lot of other like black graduate students in general. And I was kind of searching for community. Right. And I was also kind of wrestling with questions of my own identity and my own blackness being a, a mixed race person. Um, 
so I uh, ended up going to the AME church in uh, Chapel Hill, African Methodist Episcopal. I joined the church. I was pretty ardent for about six months. Um, and then it just started to feel really empty to me, right? I didn't, um, I, I didn't feel like I was uh, going through all the rituals and the motions out of any like innate desire. Uh, and I also started looking around and kind of questioning what was going on in the services. Like, the same person catches the Holy Spirit at the same time in the sermon every single week. Like, why isn't the Holy Spirit more egalitarian? Why wouldn't he like spread his holiness around to other people? Why, why is it the same dude uh, at the same time every week? So, so, you know, then it started to feel really empty and kind of meaningless to me. And I just started realizing, like, I didn't I didn't believe in this stuff. So, you know, I was searching for a little bit. I went to the Quaker meeting uh, in Chapel Hill for a while and I could kind of get with that. Right. Because it didn't seem religious. (laughs) Um, We would go. We would meditate, basically. Uh, Sometimes somebody would say something. Uh, Other times we would sit there for an hour, all basically just meditating together. And I was like, yeah, this is kind of cool. I was reading some like Eastern religions and philosophy at the time. So, um, you know, I could kind of get with that. Um, And the Eastern philosophers I was reading, uh, one in particular was Jiddu Krishnamurti. Um, And I kind of came upon him by accident, just watching a movie and seeing uh, a movie about Reuben Hurricane Carter uh, called The Hurricane and seeing Reuben Carter reading this book by Krishnamurti while he was in his prison cell called The Awakening of Intelligence. So I went and I got the book and um, I got a few of his other books. And Krishnamurti really like um, uh, attacks our belief and adherence to traditions and rituals simply for the sake of this is how it's always been done, right? And and his books really show kind of how ridiculous it is to just believe in something for no other reason than this is how we've always believed, right? And so he, I don't think he was necessarily an, an atheist and, and certainly not a part of the secular movement, but for me, he was like a sort of way station towards atheism and humanism, right? He got me thinking about um, just traditional Christianity and kind of questioning everything that I'd been taught. Um, and from there, I would then discover some of the writings of, you know, the new atheist Susan Jacoby and Sam Harris and uh, and Dawkins and, and Hitchens and others. Um, and I was just, I was immediately convinced, right? Um, that, yeah, I just read them and it, it just really made sense to me. Um, the arguments against traditional conceptions of God and, and for evolution, uh, and especially for the way that religion has harmed um you know societies around the globe and and the you know critical damage that it's done even from like religious moderates and and some religious liberals right given sanction um to to some of the more extreme and radical forms of religion so this was probably about my second uh going into my third year of graduate school so looking at about 2008 um 2009 um, by the time I finished my PhD in 2010, I was uh, pretty fully identified uh, as an atheist uh, and a humanist. So that, that's kind of the sort of religious uh, path for me. Yeah, and I can see it's it's like at various points, different elements of the religion kind of get chipped away. It was interesting, actually, that, you know, the ritual side of things, which I think is often seen as one of the positives of religion. And mm-hmm. that was the thing that you were that you were turned against as well. 
Yeah, yeah, it was strange. Just like stand up now, you know, sing this song now. Like, um, I, I don't know. It just really kind of turned me off uh, for some reason. Um, although that's not necessarily, and I think it might have been the rituals combined with the theology and the religious messages. Because when I've attended, um, I guess secular churches, if you will, uh, one of which I was just at about a week and a half ago, the Houston Oasis down in Texas, I'm not turned off by, um, you know, the kind of more churchier parts of this secular meeting, right? Um, but I was in the context of a, of a traditional church. Do you feel like religion continues to do harm in the U.S.? Oh, yes, absolutely. Um, I mean, we can see this with the religious right and its, you know, uh, close relationship to the um, very radical and uh, leaning towards, if not already fascist, um, Republican political party in this country. Um, and religion looking specifically at, you know, the African-American community still continues to sort of harm us in uh, terms of religious discrimination um, and just sort of religious sort of shaming um, of individuals. Uh, we see something like the recent Supreme Court decision that um, banned uh, abortion um, or that sort of overturned Roe versus Wade, not banning abortion, but overturned the decision, um, Roe versus Wade and and um, allowed states to now ban abortion uh, at their level. Like that's basically what the religious right has been fighting for for years. And we're already um, getting reports of, uh, you know, women having to flee to other states and um, being afraid of being persecuted and prosecuted by um, authorities in their home states. Some states are trying to now make laws where if you travel to another state to get an abortion, you can be uh, prosecuted. So, um, I mean, it it really seems like we're moving towards some Handmaid's Tale type stuff in, in certain states. It's not at the national level yet, um, but the religious right certainly does want to ban abortion at the national level, even though they um, claim to believe in states' rights. And, and was, was that rising threat part of your inspiration behind behind why now was the right time to write Black Freethinkers? Um, par part of the inspiration was, one, my own research into um, sort of religious discrimination against African-Americans and, uh, and even practitioners of African traditional religions. Um, but it was also just my own kind of budding and growing identity uh, as an as a atheist and as a humanist. So um, I had pretty much fully accepted atheism by about 2010. I was, uh, I was, I finished my dissertation that same year. So I took a couple of years, I revised my first book. Um, and then around mid to late 2012, I was looking for a new book project. Um, and that's when I uh, kind of also stumbled upon um, different blogs and some different black organizations like African Americans for Humanism. Uh, I found black nonbelievers and started connecting with some folks online. And on, on the blogs and websites of these organizations, I would see, you know, individual profiles of particular black freethinkers, right? You know, a couple of paragraphs on Zora Neale Hurston or um, Langston Hughes or somebody like that. So that, that started to pique my interest, you know. Um, I'd come across some of these and then go back, you know, like a historian does, go back to the primary sources and, okay, well, you got this little excerpt of Zora Neale Hurston's secularism from this source. Let me go back and read the entire thing. And when I started to do this, I started to just think that, you know, there really is something to 
um, you know, there being a significance of black secularism in, in African-American intellectual and political history that doesn't really seem to have gotten a lot of attention from historians, right? Um, we have, uh, you know, biographies of particular individuals and as an afterthought, their agnosticism or atheism will be mentioned. But, um, you know, I wasn't really finding that any historians had written um, you know, an overarching history exploring the uh, importance of secularism in, in African-American life, whereas there are hundreds, if not thousands of books exploring the significance of religion in African-American life. So I thought something needed to be done about that. And so, so it was really just kind of a perfect confluence of my own um, individual interests and me being able to bring a key part of my identity, um, but also needing a second book for uh, for my job and, and needing to kind of keep publishing and and, and the like, um, and finding that you know this is an area that I could really make an important uh, historical contribution. And, and and did you find that the roots? Of, of African-American secularism were distinct from a lot of the narratives or stories that were, were told, were being told about the rise in secularism generally, or, or, or is this very much um, a similar story that, uh, in terms of where these questions started to arise from? Yeah, no, they're absolutely distinct. So if we're looking at the rise of secularism uh, among white intellectuals and, and thinkers, um, you know, like Thomas Paine and Jefferson and Ethan Allen and, and others, um, we really look to uh, kind of two key sources. One is Enlightenment philosophy and the application of ideas about natural laws um, to uh, religion and the sort of rise of deism called the religion of nature. And we also look to, uh, to a lesser extent to the rise of kind of liberal uh, Protestantism during the 18th century, sort of a forerunner uh, to Unitarianism. So that could be sort of, uh, uh, again, kind of like Krishnamurti was for me, sort of a way station towards towards deism and secularism. That wasn't necessarily the case for African-Americans because uh, with the restrictions in um, just about all Southern colonies and then states after the American Revolution, um, most enslaved people were forbidden from learning how to read, right, and could face incredibly severe punishments for doing so. So they weren't necessarily as conversant with Enlightenment thinkers, but they were nevertheless uh, intelligent individuals themselves who could, uh, you know, look at their world, reason, and kind of think about uh, the ideas that they were hearing about the nature of the world, about religion, about the character um, of God, and they could come to their own conclusions based upon their experiences and for you know most enslaved people those experiences were suffering and brutality and physical punishment and separation from family and distress right not to say that there weren't times of joy with the birth of a child or getting married or anything like that but a central and critical component of slavery was the suffering right that's how it was maintained so you had enslaved people who were like looking around and thinking i can't believe that there's a, a just and um you know omnipotent and and benevolent god who cares about my interests and and who created uh, this world right if there is a god it must be one that hates black people um 
But for many, it's just easier to believe that there's no God altogether. So you do see during the late 18th and uh, throughout the 19th centuries kind of parallel developments of secularism with uh, white secularism being based largely on Enlightenment philosophy um, and black secularism sort of emerging out of the lived experiences and realities of slavery. Those two would come together a bit more in the later 19th and moving into the 20th century when African-Americans are able to access um, both secondary and higher education, when they are able to become more conversant with, um, you know, enlightenment thought. So curiously enough, you actually see, um, you know, Rousseau and Paine and Montesquieu playing more of a role in black secular uh, development during the early 20th century than it did closer to the time period when they were writing. You know, I found evidence of um, of folks like Hubert Harrison and Harry Haywood in the early 20th century talking about reading these uh, 18th century European philosophers and how they influenced their views on religion. I wonder, were there any individuals whose stories really stood out for you in researching the book as perhaps people that we sh- we should know more about? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one is a woman named Louise Thompson Patterson. Um, and when we think about, you know, Black secularism, there are some figures that maybe do stand out, right? We might think, you know, okay, Frederick Douglass, right? Or um, perhaps W.E.B. Du Bois or looking at the civil rights era like Huey Newton, right? And, and a lot of the folks in the Black Panther Party. Louise Thompson Patterson is somebody who is much more kind of understated um, and hasn't received as much attention. But um, I was able to find a lot of evidence for her uh, kind of growing secularism in an unpublished autobiography um, that she nearly completed and went through a, a few different drafts of and is located um, in an archive at Emory University in, in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, And there she talks about her experiences with religious discrimination and racism growing up in um, Washington State, um, in in Walla Walla, Washington, um, and other kind of smaller, more rural areas of Washington State in the early 20th century. Uh, She then attended the University of California, Berkeley um, in the early 1920s um, and would articulate her opposition to religion in sort of a number of different arenas uh, in her life. She ended up being a really prominent um, member of the Communist Party, which really opened up a lot of opportunities for leadership for black women that were not available to them within um, African-American organizations, especially black churches. Right. Um, So she was a really prominent communist organizer, um, an atheist and a free thinker. And she lived an incredibly long life. She lived till she was almost 100 years old. Right. So she was around and friends with Langston Hughes in the Harlem Renaissance. And she lived into the early 90s. Um, So she saw almost the entire arc uh, of the 20th century and was really um, critically involved in some key moments in black political history. So, um, yeah, kind of finding finding that evidence about her was just really amazing. I actually went to Emory to uh, work in the papers of Alice Walker, um, who I knew I knew was a free thinker because she had won the Humanist of the Year Award from the American Humanist Association. So I knew that and I had access to that published speech. I went to work in Walker's um, personal papers just to read through all of her letters and see if there are other connections. And when I was talking about the archivist, he told me about Louise Thompson Patterson's papers. I'm like, all right. Um, so that was that was a really um, 
uh, great and exciting find for me. It it does seem like there's more female voices in uh, in in this story than than perhaps we usually hear in the, the, as I said the, the the European narrative of the Enlightenment right the way through to the New Atheist movement. Mm-hmm. Do you think there's a reason behind that? Well, I I tried to be really intentional about finding all of the evidence I could from. Um, uh, from uh, black female free thinkers. And this is in large part motivated by the pioneering work of um, the contemporary um, female black free thinker, Sakibu Hutchinson, whose um, books, uh, Moral Combat and Godless Americana, I really just kind of ate up. Um, and that kind of pushed me to look for, um, you know, all the historical uh, female black free thinkers that I could and to really just highlight their stories uh, as much as possible. Because you're right, they haven't really been told. Um, so I tried to, you know, include people like Patterson and Nella Larson and, and Hurston uh, and others to show that they were, you know, um, critically important in this history and really drivers at some points um, of the kind of conversations around black secularism. And I'm wondering, was there anything which you changed your mind from in in researching and, and putting this book together? Was there any any um, anything you found particularly surprising? Um, the the main thing was organizational. Um, so I was going to initially the book was going to go up to uh, 2020, right? Uh, Black Freethinkers basically ends around the civil rights era, though. Um, and then I have a afterward that kind of traces some of the history after uh, 1975, uh, but does so very sort of briefly and perfunctorily. And that's because as I started gathering materials for the post-civil rights era, I found that there was just so much that it was going to be too unwieldy of a, of a final chapter, right? It Even the last chapter um, of Black Freethinkers on the civil rights era, that, that was pretty long. I think it was close to 70 manuscript pages, right? Um, and, and I had way more materials for the post-civil rights period. So uh, yeah, I decided that I was going to write a second volume um, as a follow-up that just looked at the period from 1975 uh, through 2020. I wondered as well what what has the reception been like to the book? Um, you know, now that it's it's uh, been out and you've probably had a chance to to get some feedback. Yeah, I think it's been pretty good. Uh, I've been invited to give talks all across the United States, um, and um, you know, I've had good crowds at at many of these events, and um, it's it's especially been well received by uh, Unitarian Universalists, who, which is not a particularly diverse denomination, but they're very very interested in in uh, the history of secularism and have really kind of eaten up this uh, work on black secularism. So that's probably the uh, one kind of group that I've given more talks about black freethinkers to than than any other ones. But um, yeah, the reception I think is, has been pretty strong from UU churches to um, secular organizations throughout uh, the U.S. And, and some universities as well. Well, that bodes well for, for the success of your next book then of the Universalists, uh, particularly, uh, particularly keen. Um, yeah. And what about the state, state of um, black free thought since the book's come out? Have you seen, do you think it's contributed to, to a rise? Um, I'm not sure my book has contributed to a rise, but I think there is already sort of a a broader movement away from institutional religion, 
um, within the United States and the recent Pew Forum um, for the study of religion has kind of shown that that shift uh, in, in black religious life and in American religious life more broadly. Um, but I do think, you know, for the audiences that I've spoken to, I have gotten a lot of feedback from people that, that said that, you know, they never knew any of this history and it sort of inspired them to kind of talk to their family about their own beliefs. So I do think on a kind of more individual level here and there, uh, my book is, has had some impact, but I don't think I can necessarily take credit for sort of the larger trends that that were already kind of in play before the book was published. If anyone's interested in finding out more in this area, are there any other books you would recommend aside from your own? Yeah, um, Michael Lackey has a book called African American Atheists and Political Liberation. Um, it's it's very academic. It's kind of a literary analysis of some of the writings of early 20th century black atheists, but it's a really uh, great sort of in-depth look at, at sort of the development of black atheist thought at the time. Uh, and then basically any, anything written by uh, Anthony Penn, who's, who's been working in the area of black humanism for uh, nearly three decades now, um, I would especially suggest uh, his um, his edited collection by these hands, a documentary history of African American humanism, um, as well as uh, his book The End of God Talk, uh, where he sort of uh, works to develop um, in African American humanist theology. Um, so yeah, Michael Lackey and Anthony Pinn, and Sakibu Hutchinson, who I mentioned earlier, has some some wonderful works on the intersections of uh, gender and um, Black free thought. And if uh, anyone listening would like to uh, find out more, uh, what would be the best way to, to get in contact or to, to follow you? Uh, you can email me at christopher.cameron at charlotte.edu. Um, it's my uh, university uh, email address. Um, or you can look me up on Facebook, um, and I'll be happy to get back to you and look forward to meeting a lot of folks listening to this uh, next Friday. Chris Cameron there. Um, And as mentioned, you'll be able to catch Chris in conversation with S.I. Martin um, on the 22nd of September here in central London. Um, Audrey, I know uh, you've also um, read Chris's book, and I just wanted to get your initial thoughts on on the interview and and, and what you took from the book. Um, The interview was really nice to get a background on on Professor Cameron and where he was coming from and where that book um, came from. The book itself for me felt quite seminal. It felt like we've been waiting for the context for Black Free Thought. And I think he was able to put that foundation in. It felt the kind like the kind of book that gave you all the background. We know some of the names. We knew W.E.D. Boyce. We knew, you know, we know Fred, um, Frederick Douglass. We know these names, um, but we know them in in um, in sort of snippets. We kind of know bits about their lives, and we think we know them. But I think for me, this book actually kind of puts them in context and also lets you know that nothing happens in a vacuum. So when by the time we get to James Baldwin we have a whole history of people you know starting from slavery all the way through and that constant relentless um, idea of free thought threading its way all the way through was quite empowering for me to be sitting there thinking actually you know what I mean you know we're standing on the shoulders of giants in terms of how we where we are now sitting here in 2023 and how far this whole journey has come um so i felt quite um 
you know, I, I, it was really empowering for me. And I, I, I really love the book um, and kind of felt that it's a kind of book that anyone coming new to, to humanism, you kind of go, you want to know where you come from here? You know, it might make it sort of compulsory reading for ABH members or something like that. Absolutely. And I think it's a shame we've got to wait another three or four years for volume two, although it's pleased, good to know that it is coming down the tracks. Um, AJ, what did you take away most? For me, the global roots of humanism is something that I that kept coming to my mind listening to that interview. We mentioned it a bit in episode one, and I think that it really speaks to one of the aims that we want with this podcast. I mean, it's humanism now. We're London-based, um, and we had Roz from uh, Africa given her Ghanaian perspective in episode one. But And I think we want to continue that. And, and Professor Cameron's book is excellent at reminding us that humanism isn't and also shouldn't be perceived as and we can't let it be perceived as a western european export uh, orientalism colonialism of course they're all especially coming from the indian subcontinent and, and my uh, family background and ethnic background that's certainly very uh, prominent in our minds and we have to be careful of that but we have to fight against that and make sure that the stories and the contributions uh, of uh, the people that are relatively well-known, like W.E.B. Du Bois and Frederick Douglass, as Audrey said, but also people who, within their own cultures, within Indian culture, the rationalist tradition, within the slave rebellion and black free thought culture, even the unsung heroes and heroines in those cultures need to be uh, prominently taught. And so education, as we know, is a very important part of, for, of any movement. We had, so I'm really looking forward to Professor Cameron in dialogue with uh, S.I. Martin, the event that we've got coming up. And S.I. Martin gave us a talk at uh, the London Humanists last year, I think it was, on the history of Black free thought in Britain. And that's our own tradition and culture and history here, but it's not taught in schools uh, at all. And uh, there are some amazing, inspiring stories of radicals, of uh, just stubborn uh, people who refuse to give in to an orthodoxy that was imposed upon them. And we have stories all over the world, Arab humanists who are an excellent follow on, on socials, um, ABH, and uh, humanists from uh, Latin America, from uh, Asia as well. So I think these the global story of what humanism is, is something that I'd really like to push on this podcast. And Professor Cameron's interview uh, was uh, an excellent, an excellent, I think, launching off point for that. I'd also like to just add um, what I liked about the book also was his um, Professor Cameron's treatment of women um, and their voice. He gave, he pays particular attention um, to the women's voice within the various movements. And I think you and I think women's voices are always relegated to, you know, way back in the in the corners in the cheap seats and i i love the elevation that he has given the the female voice the you know the elevation of feminism and also highlighting the important and vital roles that they play throughout the various movements um when we look at the sort of harlem renaissance and and com coming forward and and even before that he really does um treat them with respect and kindness and really gives them the space to show what they, you know, their part 
And um, I actually felt quite warmed by that as well, to say that the woman's voice, not just in this kind of feminist, um, you know, be nice to us kind of way, but the seminal important roles that they undertook and in challenging, and they had to challenge not just the wider idea of, of, of feminine, of w- women's voices, but even within their own movements, even within the Black Panthers, their voices were, you know, trying to be quietened and they then had to then challenge that as well. And he kind of sets that in the idea of communism and why communism within the 20s and 30s was so appealing to um, Black free thinkers at the time was because it was just... You know, it was the way when you're living in a country that is full of racism, communism feels like, you know, an ideal space. And whatever we think of communism now, back at that time, you know, Russia was a completely or the USSR was a completely different space and was appealing. And I I, I enjoyed the way that he treated this, the whole aspect of that. He wanted to make sure he was shining a light on as diverse uh, a range of voices and and perhaps those stories that, that haven't been told as much um and and that certainly stood out and i definitely think that conversation between uh chris and si martin next week is probably going to be extremely enlightening in terms of given both of their intellectual backgrounds and the areas that they research i mean this this is going to be a huge um um collaboration to bring together the uk's story and what's happened in the us um so so very much looking forward to that Yes, both of those. I mean, when Professor Cameron came to ABH and asked us, you know, to 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 put this thing together, um, S.I. Martin was the first person who's also, um, you know, a, a very important part of Association of Black Humanists. And and in the interview, he, um, Professor Cameron, talks about, you know, Professor Anthony Pinn, again, someone that we have had on in, in ABH as well. And we really do try to get all of those voices out there, um, looking at um black humanism and humanism within within the black community and all of the all the challenges that that uh, being a black humanist brings and thinking of professor pin and you know um humanism colorblindness is not the answer um again that kind of highlights the challenges that we as humanists uh, as black humanists kind of face within the humanist community and the kind of challenges that we still face. So again, it's not an it's, you know, having all of these voices coming together. And we are really grateful to um Professor Cameron to come to ABH and supporting us in getting this um this whole thing off, off the ground and obviously um CLH for being part of it. But um you know have I think our name is out there well enough for people to come forward to us now and know that we can um, offer a space for for people um, to 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 step forward. So again, you know, ABH is 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 where it's happening. If you want to keep in contact with us, there'll be others that we hopefully will be able to put um, put together in the future. Thank you, uh, thank you, AJ. Thank you, Audrey. Now um, we mentioned last week that we are. Uh, hoping in this last section to answer any of your burning questions and we did uh, open our mailbag so we've had a question in this week um uh, from Fadia in Cambridge and it, it it's in relation to something you mentioned last week AJ talking about um what it means to be spiritual but not religious or humanistic spirituality and I was interested in hearing more about this and what it means to be spiritual to you and not religious is it just associated with mindfulness or is it something more 
Yeah, so this is a, a really core um, aspect of my kind of thought process and my mental framework is this idea of spirituality. And I think humanists um, and other free thinkers and skeptics, there is an argument for us to try and re-own or own or stake our ownership to that claim and not let it be exclusively in the realm of those of religious faith. And as we said last week uh, in episode one, we have to be careful of our terms here. And uh, spirituality can be very close to spiritism or spiritualism, uh, mediums and readings and trying to contact your you know, grandma uh, from beyond the grave, etc. And it, for me, it's nothing to do with that. From my personal perspective, it's, uh, as we mentioned a bit last week, it's about looking beyond the outer. So we have the spirit of the law, and then we have the letter of the law. And the idea of being the letter of the law is the very sort of superficial a very primary initial reading or understanding of something. Looking beyond that, the spirit of something is what's actually inside. And that can have many forms, looking, you know, not judging a book by its cover, uh, not judging a moment by just sort of the outer aspects of it or what may happen in our lives, good things, bad things, tragedies, crises, but also um, successes, trying not to be too carried away with the twos and fro's of life, but being, as you say, mindfulness is a big part of it being grateful, stopping to smell the roses. Alice Roberts has, has talked very much about this, uh, a, a previous um, Humanist UK president and, and a prominent broadcaster. And there's a long, rich tradition of humanists, atheists, agnostic skeptics, talking to this need for humans from a scientific point of view, evolutionarily. We are mythical creatures in some sense. We uh, like storytelling. We like creating narratives. We like describing maybe in too much of an anthropomorphic way, imposing our values and concepts upon the natural world. And without taking it too seriously, as in going and believing in the supernatural, but understanding it as a part of our psychology is, I think, really important. Now, one may say, why not just call it human psychology? Why call it spirituality? Again, I'm not too wedded to the terms. Personally, I'm fine with calling it a humanistic spirituality. Indeed, that's what we call it in one of the modules of our One Life course that we teach at CLH, uh, that we try and do yearly. And that's an introduction to humanism. One of the modules that I teach is called an everyday humanistic spirituality. And uh, indeed, Alice Roberts and many others have used that term as well. And many other figures like Rabindranath Tagore from the Indian tradition uh, and globally, uh, that, uh, that aspect has been recognized as a, as a core aspect of human psychology because that's part of our genetic endowment. That's part of the history of our species. And I think to deny that, it would be a shame. And the other part of it is, it helps us better connect to people of religious faith, both from an interfaith dialogue perspective and to be part of the same society that we share. But also, we can show, we can try and answer one of the points that Audrey raised uh, before from her personal story, the accusations from others saying, well, atheists and humanists, are, you're living a half-life. You don't have a morality. You don't have a sense of awe. You don't have a sense of wonder. Where is your sort of you know, sense of majesty and glory that you're in this amazing world? And, uh, and I, my answer to that would be, you know, try uh, watching Carl Sagan's Cosmos. Uh, try reading you know, Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. There is enough wonder already it just in truth is stranger than fiction um, because fiction has to stick to possibilities. Truth doesn't. So we don't know what we're going to discover. So all of these senses of how we give meaning to our lives and how we situate ourselves in this universe, to me, is quite a, uh, you know, it gives me goosebumps in terms of what 
that that perspective and that for me enriches my life and gives me a sense of perspective and a meaning and a motivation uh, when life can sometimes get quite tough so none of these what I've, none of what i've laid out there requires a belief in the supernatural or belief in a higher deity that's going to judge me for doing this or that act so i think for people who do want it and not everyone does there is an aspect of humanism that can serve you in the buffet of all of the different benefits that humanism can offer humanistic spirituality is certainly there uh, and i think it should be valued for what it is and what about you audrey would you consider yourself a spiritual person the thing about it is i think i've i've always looked at spirituality in terms of the traditional way and so i kind of rejected it but listening to aj there kind of gave me a different perspective and a different connection and i suppose it's about the labeling for me i think there were some words it, it's a bit like atheist some people get turned off by that word um so i think all of the things are things that you know all the, all the things that you described aj are things that i you know all wonder you know stopping to smell the roses are things that i consider to be part of humanism i hadn't given it that spiritual label because of what spirituality means and i suppose i would kind of think about if we're going to use that I, I don't know maybe it's just the labeling for me i understand the context i understand all of those things um but yeah maybe i need to explore it a little bit more and think about it in a, in a slightly different way so i thank you for giving me that that explanation of it um because i've always just rejected spirituality because i said to myself i didn't quite understand what it meant in in the humanist co- context because for me spirituality is the mediums it is trying to contact granny um, which is quite scary. Um, so I just kind of wanted to, so I, I think I need to kind of investigate it a little bit more and maybe consider it a little bit more because um, I think it, it is important that we understand all aspects of human life and, and, and who we are as human beings and how we connect not only with each other, with our communities, but with the wider world and not in that practical you know, we, we kind of think of logic and, you know, practicality. And we have to be more it's sort of external to ourselves to make that connection as well. And the hope and possibilities and all the things that, that are, you know, that we can't touch and hold. So I think giving an understanding of that side of things is vital to us as human, as, as, as humanists and as human beings. So, um, yeah, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm open to this idea of humanist spirituality. Um, I'll have a look, I'll have a think, I'll kind of ponder <laughs> this whole idea and I might come back and uh, let you know my thoughts. Yeah, he's very convincing, isn't he? <laughs> Very. I, should also, I, I should also say that, that there is a, an element of privilege here as well. I don't come from a religious background, and that's very important to say. I've never belonged to a religious faith. Uh, I can consider myself uh, um, quite privileged in that aspect because I have seen that my uh, my perspective is quite privileged compared to people who have had to associate what they see as spirituality with family manipulation, with blackmail, with all kinds of trauma. So certainly that we all have our own particular blind spots and, and biases. So I tried to take account of that. And that's why I said there's room at the humanist table for people of all backgrounds uh, in terms of their uh, nationality, ethnicity, and also their religious background. So if, if and there certainly is plenty of room at the humanist table for people who are very, very stern and strict with their terms and say, no, I don't want to open the door in any way to any kind of 
reaching across the table to meet someone halfway and we'll come with our humanist spirituality and they can come with a religious spirituality and we'll see sort of where the common grounds are. We'll keep our differences, we'll keep our common grounds. Many humanists do reject that and they should feel free to reject it because that's their lived experience. That's the, what that's what they're bringing to the humanist table. And uh, I think it's important to be clear before any discussion how we're using the terms and why we're using them. As already mentioned there, Sometimes we also overvalue, but humanists are often accused of being too intellectual or too philosophical or too just, just very intense with our academic approach to things. And I think in some sense of spirituality, and the reason why I and Alice Roberts and many other people have, have used that term, is just a, a nod to the idea that we can live a fulfilling life and have fulfilling experiences without necessarily going through the, the rational mill where everything has to be logical, everything has to be sort of, there are, there are aspects of life that do need to do that. Like if you have a medical problem, you need to approach it in a very rational way and not uh, in, a, in a spiritual sort of hope and pray for the best kind of way. But there are other, other aspects of life, love, relationships, music, uh, being lost in creative expression, uh, th these don't need to be arrived at through an inter intellectual uh, path uh, or necessarily using our IQ. We can also use our emotional intelligence in other ways. So I think that variety is what I'd like to emphasize and leave the door open to. So I'm very glad that question was asked. And uh, hopefully we can explore this, not just through my perspective, but through other perspectives as well in future episodes. Thank you. And if you would like to send us a question, um, we'll link to our email address in the show notes and we'll be setting up our social channels soon. Well, that's everything for today. Uh, just leaves me to thank AJ and Audrey uh, and you listener. Um, now to play us out this week, um, we do have another event uh, coming up uh, next week. Uh, our What Humanism Means to Me uh, meets a monthly talk where we're going to be joined by a panel of our members um, and also a special guest speaker, poet Alex Williams. Um, and he's been kind enough to send us in advance one of his poems. Um, so uh, to play us out, here is Alex Williams. What on earth more wondrous than a hummingbird exists? Nature's glory, floating sharp, a sliver, silver in a liquid air. Purple dash flash blue of slicing vibration, mocking gravity, drinking deep the lees of floral nectar hidden from less specialised imbibers. Bobbing wonder, flit of beauty, pinnacle of process, evolutionary, cousin of all life.